Basecamp has been around for about 12 years now. That is about twice the length of a venture capitalist cycle. Most venture capitalists invest for the five to seven year term. So we would have had to be sold twice over to still stick around or go IPO or do any of these other things. And we opted not to go that route. We opted to go a much slower round um, where we weren't going to get these fantastical usage numbers out the gate because we had to build everything in a sustainable, slow-cooking, profitable way where we weren't just pouring in rocket fuel of tens or hundreds of millions into, uh, into something that wasn't yet. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Louder Than Words. It's great to have you here yet again as we get to hang out with some of the most interesting people in business entrepreneurship or whatever other buzzword moniker you want to give to people just getting work done. My name's John Benini. I'm a growth marketer and copywriter just trying to find his way like all of you guys. You can come say hello to me on Twitter at Benini84 or on my website at johnbenini.co. Uh, today, though, more importantly, we're hanging out with David Heinemeyer Hansen, and hopefully I didn't butcher that. Uh, better known, though, to most people as DHH, as he is on Twitter. David is the creator of Ruby on Rails, a partner at Basecamp and also co-founder, and best-selling author of the books Rework and Remote. David, thanks so much for hanging out on Loud Other Words, man. How's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here, and I, I guess I have to lead off here. You wrote this really fascinating piece uh, last week called Reconsider that actually was the number one post on Medium. And it also caused quite the wave in the tech and software ecosystem, right? Because you were discussing many of the things that, um, you know, we all do every day or the things that we face or the challenges that we face and sort of the stigmas that are attached to, you know, our jobs and way of life. So we'll get into the specifics of that a bit. But first, what inspired this, this expose really on the Silicon Valley slash startup type culture? So it's funny because reconsider in many ways is almost like a distilled hit single version of, uh, thoughts I've been cooking on for a very long time. Um, I've been skeptical of the venture capitalist-backed industry for a long time. And I think that skepticism has just sort of been brewing and going and coming over the years. And, And recently, I think it's reached new heights as this whole disruptomania and hysteria over unicorns and billion dollar companies and disruption has reached a new peak. And I think why this particular post just hit a nerve with a lot of people is exactly that. There's this shared sense that San Francisco and Silicon Valley are pumping themselves up to be the be-all and end-all of technology and of startups and have sort of monopolized the idea of the startup. That if you're not trying to follow in the footsteps of these billion dollar companies, if you're not trying to become one, if you're not trying to jump on the venture capitalist money IPO train, well, what are you doing? You're probably not even a startup. Uh, Maybe you're a lifestyle business, maybe you're a small business, maybe you're a bunch of other things, but startup is stretching it. And I think that's just rubbing a lot of people all sorts of wrong ways. On top of that, when you have these um, so-called unicorns, Uber and others disrupting, rewriting parts of society in ways that um, are not always very flattering, then uh, I think the the skepticism just grows even stronger. So I kind of just put out many of the ideas that I've been talking about and thinking about for a long time, distilled them into a, a single post. I was actually intending to, to make this... Um, conference talk at Web Summit, uh, one of the biggest, probably the biggest startup gathering in Europe, uh, in Dublin. 
I couldn't make the conference, but um, thankfully the talk, I had already written it out. It needed to be a tight 15 minutes. So I did something I've never done before and wrote the whole talk out as though I was writing an essay. And then lo and behold, I could make the conference and there I had the essay ready to go and, and publish it went. And yeah, it certainly resonated with, with, with a lot of people, myself included. Um, you know, and, and a lot of that sort of like that, that stigma are these, you know, these, uh, attached to people in the space. A lot of that occurs, um, coincidentally in the sort of project management like space that Basecamp has, has always found themselves in and you guys really pioneered. Um, but Basecamp still is like the formidable option. Um, you know, with all this explosion in the project management space, you know, all these different software, all these tools, why does Basecamp still find itself, you know, as, you know, the standard? Like, you know, Basecamp is the collaboration software that many engineering teams and product teams and marketing teams, you know, it's just part of our vernacular, you know, check the post in Basecamp, you know. So why has Basecamp still been able to, you know, basically, I guess, sort of survive all of these, you know, companies that raise these huge, massive rounds of Series A and, and uh, you know, go through this whole sort of, like, venture capital, um, you know, ringer. Why does Basecamp still, you know, I guess, why are they still Basecamp? I think in part, in large part, because we didn't do any of all that. Basecamp has been around for about 12 years now. That is about twice the length of a venture capitalist cycle. Most venture capitalists invest for the five to seven year term. So we would have had to be sold twice over to still stick around or go IPO or do any of these other things. And we opted not to go that route. We opted to go a much slower round um, where we weren't going to get these fantastical usage numbers out the gate because we had to build everything in a sustainable, slow cooking, profitable way where we weren't just pouring in rocket fuel of tens or hundreds of millions into, uh, into something that wasn't yet. So we built Basecamp slowly but surely since 2004. We're first year of growth, not at all spectacular. It would have been written off as a failure by just about any VC outfit today. Oh, your hockey stick is not uh, strong enough. It's not too uh, enough up and to the right. Um, fold and try again. Well, we didn't fold and we didn't try again. We just stuck with it for 12 years. And I think there's a lot of people who can sort of both respect that and find it uniquely practical. We have a lot of customers who've been around for like 11, 12 years. They've been able to keep their data in our systems um, and continue to use it, continue to rely on it. That Basecamp can just be this tool that works. Then on top of that, we haven't stood still. So I think there are certainly software packages that's been around for a decade or more. A fair number of those feel like they've been around for a decade or more, right? Uh, I was just talking to my wife the other day about um, some of these services for ordering food. Um, we've been using a bunch of these new tools that popped up, Postmates or whatever else have you. And then when you compare those to sort of older things like Grubhub or other tools in the space, you can see the time difference, right? You can see which tool started in 2005 and which tool started in 2014. And we've tried very hard not to fall into that trap of feeling like Basecamp is still a tool stuck in 2004 when it was founded. We just released a brand new version, Basecamp 3, rewritten from scratch um, over the past year and a half or so that feels very much like it's a 2015 software package. So when you combine those two things, the one that we have a legacy, we have a continuity, we have a sustainable and dependable business that people have known for more than a decade. And then at the same time, we also have a software package that's completely fresh, new, feels 2015. I think that's a very powerful combo that's in some ways, hard to replicate, right? Like usually you get one or the other. Usually you get stable, dependable, eh, kind of stale, kind of old, not with the latest, or you get latest, greatest, doesn't have a long history, is probably on a VC time bomb track. Um, is this thing going to be around in five years from now? Oh, I don't know. So 
the intersection of those two things is where Basecamp prospers right now. And that's a great point, too. I think many CRMs fall in the category of functional, does a great job, kind of stale, kind of seems outdated. And, and you're exactly right. I guess the, the anecdote is, is, is that 12-year or, or, or basically consistency, right? Patience, which uh, not a lot of people have in, in the tech space. Um, so just to back up a bit, like how did you, how did you first get involved in 37 Signals and Basecamp? And you know, how did you and Jason Freed meet? So we met online in, in a funny way, actually. Jason had founded 37 Signals back in 99 with a couple of partners, Ernest Kim and uh, Carlos Segura. And they've been running this blog, Signals versus Noise, that whole time. I became an early fan of that blog, of the whole 37 Signals ethos, design, approach, and all the things that the company stood for. Very different, very unlike what else was going on in web design in the early 2000s. So when Jason posted a thing on SBN about learning uh, PHP, I said, hey, I've been a fan for a long time. I know this question. Let me write him back. So we struck up a conversation, traded emails back and forth. And before you knew it, Jason decided it was easier to hire me than to learn how to program. And we started working together, first on a project called Single File that he was building, uh, kind of a project to keep track of your books and which books you had and how you were lending it out. That was a continuation of uh, FileMaker Pro apps that Jason has been making since the mid-90s. And then we continued to work together after that project launched on a variety of client projects. That work, the collaboration on client projects, was what eventually led us to the idea of Basecamp. We weren't happy with how those client projects were being managed. We thought we could do better. We thought we could build software to help us. So we started building that software during the development, realized, hey, we have something here that others might use, and turned basically what was initially just a, a package for ourselves into a product we could sell to other people, launched it in 2004. And in 2005, I was done with school. Uh, I was thinking about where am I going to go with all this, um, and I gave Jason the proposition of basically becoming business partners going forward, and, um, and here we are 10 years later been going strong ever since. And still, I mean, uh, what's interesting is that in, in, in the piece that, uh, you know, you just put together, um, you know, you kind of talked about, uh, you know, how, you know, Basecamp is still 50 people, um, no San Francisco office, right? Again, things that run counter to a lot of the, you know, stigmas attached to, you know, successful, quote unquote, tech and software companies or, or products. Um, So how have you guys managed to stay so lean, but still have the market penetration that you've had and just, you know, without really following convention? I mean, if there is such a thing. It's funny, because to me, 50 people is enormous. Basecam and 37 signals before it was a tiny company for a very long time. Um, for the first many years of the company, we were below 10 people. Uh, then we, we hovered around the 12 to 14 for a long time. And while we were 12 to 14 people, we had four projects under management, or four products under management. We had the base camp, we had high rise, we had campfire, we had backpack. So in terms of breadth, we actually used to do even more with even fewer people. What's changed is that Basecamp over the years just kept growing and growing and growing. And today continues to be this rocket ship that just signs up what we sign up, what, 6,000 people every week. Or not 6,000 people, 6,000 organizations, 6,000 companies every week sign up for Basecamp, right? That is just a different kind of scale that's very hard to manage with, uh, with what we used to have. Um, and at the same token, most companies that do that kind of business would be far, far larger than what we are. But from the beginning, we've felt that being small is a massive advantage. We wanted to stay as small as possible for as long as possible, less mass, uh, less stuff to create direction change around. Just this whole notion of Basecamp 3, right? To take a product like Basecamp that's been massively successful and then say, hey, let's rewrite it. Not once, but twice. We rewrote it uh, back in 2012, and now we've rewritten it again from scratch. Companies that are large just generally don't do that. 
the larger you get, the more sort of set in your structure and your ways you become, and the more mass you carry around. So you just can't do stuff like that. You just can't rewrite the entire code base from scratch. Most people would call you crazy to to attempt that, even if you were a much smaller company with far fewer customers. Well, we're a huge company in terms of number of people who depend on Basecamp and number of people who use it every day. But uh, we're a small company in terms of the software mass, in terms of the uh, number of people who work at the company compared to that. So we can do things that are seemingly crazy, things you're not supposed to do because of that. And that's a big part of why I love still working at Basecamp and why I foresee working at Basecamp until the end of my time working. Um, we built this entire company and this culture around the very, very long term. That's not to invoke any sort of hypers and say, oh, we're going to be around for 100 years. I think it, the odds of you being around for 100 years are vanishingly small. And if you formulate that as a distinct mission, I think you're even more likely to, to not make it. But we have chosen to look at the long term, not look at how are things going to look in the next year, even two years, but how are things going to look in the next 10 years with that belief that we've built a pretty stable, sustainable, comfortably growing company uh, by doing that all along and not being in too much of a hurry, not trying to just throw rocket fuel at this thing. Um, I'm absolutely sure that if we had taken on venture capital, um, people would have gotten way too greedy way too early. They would have seen, oh, Basecamp has this great trajectory. What would happen if we threw $30 million behind that in salespeople and marketing campaigns and all sorts of things and tried to just grow, grow, grow as fast as we possibly could? Well, I think there's a very good chance that the whole rocket would just have blown up, um, which... Again, if, if that's your path of venture capital and, and rocket fuel is what you're going, you accept those risks, right? We didn't accept those risks. We didn't want those risks. We wanted better odds at just something that was comfortable and manageable and sustainable. So um, here we are. And you've said that you know Basecamp. You weren't. You know, it wasn't trying to disrupt anything. It wasn't trying to add new members to the three comma club. Um, it seems that uh, you know it was it was more probably product focused than most things that we see now. So you know, and you you pondered this question in in that most recent piece is you know why did you start up? You know, like it, most people have these grand aspirations that you know they they do see themselves being the next Facebook or we're gonna be the Uber of you know insert industry here. Um, you know, where you guys had much more modest, like you said, it started as like a, a side project, um, and you weren't trying to disrupt anything, yet you did um, in the process. So, you know, what were you trying to do? Why did you start up? I think the founding principle here is the same founding principle behind Ruby and Rails, actually. The belief that I am not a beautiful, unique snowflake, that I am just like most other people, and that I will suffer the same odds as most of the people trying to do the same things. And if I'm going to have a good chance of success, it's not going to be because I just get super lucky and knock it out of the park somehow. It's going to be because I position myself with great odds that I increase my chances and my likelihood of success. And even believing that I'm doing all that, still knowing that it's unlikely to happen, right? which was one of the reasons when we started Basecamp, we hedged our beds pretty quickly. We launched Basecamp in 2004, and it wasn't long after until we started launching other products. We launched Campfire, the chat tool, and we launched HiRise, the CRM tool, and we launched Backpack, a sort of uh, personal information management system. And we did all those things to, to hedge our beds to, with the full realization that Basecamp could implode tomorrow. The rocket ship could stop going skywards and, and come tumbling down, and we wanted options. So we built the whole thing around just increasing our odds that we could still be in business, we could still be around, and we could still have a comfortable business no matter what the size it grew to. If Basecamp had basically never allowed us to grow beyond, let's say, five or ten people, well, so what? It would have been a great business. I thoroughly enjoyed the years of Basecamp when it could support five to ten people. That was a wonderful business. And I think that that's the realization that small is not a stepping stone. We're not just 
five right now because we're aiming to be 500, because we're aiming to be 5,000, because we're aiming to be 50,000. That path in and of itself is just not that interesting. Like, I don't want to give away the experience of right now and enjoying that because I'm constantly looking to a hyper growth future, right? In many ways, I think the, the trade-offs are the other, other way around, that uh, the companies that do happen to enjoy their smallness, they're more fun, they're more rewarding, they're more interesting than these sort of uh, big behemoths, at least for me. Maybe that's a post-rationalization, you can call it whatever you want, but falling in love with the size that you have and where you are, it's just a very compelling way to be happy about your life and be happy about your work and not constantly be looking for the bigger, better, greater thing. But uh, just uh, loving what you do every day because chances are you're going to be stuck with that. Chances are you're not going to turn into this uh, comet, right? Chances are you're not going to become a unicorn. So if all your aspirations are pointed in that direction, you're bound to just be disappointed by these towering expectations. So tear down the expectations, tear down sort of all those aspirations even, tear down your ambition even. And what you're left with is sort of being happy with where you are and where you're going because you believe in the work that you're doing, you're enjoying the work that you're doing every day, you've designed your company in such a way that... uh, um, you'd be happy if that's where it ends. And that's rare though, right? I mean, because l- like you said, like nobody these days is content to merely put their dent in the universe. Uh, and and, I'm, and I'm, I th- I'm paraphrasing here, but no, they have to fucking own the universe. And this stretches into companies that, you know, you know get coverage or funding. Like, like is, is our perception on success, you know, just totally screwed because of like what you just said is is not the norm. It's complete. It's it's very rare. You guys are are the exception and not the rule to most product companies. So, is our perception of success just like I said, just totally screwed? Well, first of all, I think it's a screwed perception that we are not the norm. I think there are tons and tons of base camps out there at various levels of scales. There are far more companies doing $5 million a year, $10 million a year, $20 million a year than there are companies worth a billion. So what is skewed is the coverage and the perception of success, as you say, that unless you become a unicorn, unless you join that club, you're not successful. And I just go like, what? What are you talking about? Um, it's such a narrow definition of success. It doesn't mean those things are not successful. I mean, peace be with the Facebooks and the Twitters and whatever else of the world. It's just, uh, we need other and different role models that this should not be the only thing. It's kind of like uh, you sort of talking to kids, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? If, if all they say is like, oh, I want to play in the NBA or I want to be in the NFL or I want to be any of these things where the odds of reaching the echelons are so vanishingly small that the vast, vast, vast majority will end up sorely disappointed, then how are you helping them? How are you setting them up for a sort of good experience in life? I think we're setting up a lot of entrepreneurs for a really bad experience by uh, constantly reinforcing this unicorn nonsense that this is what businesses are supposed to look like. This is what they're supposed to aspire to. There's just such a broader spectrum of success and motivations that uh, we can dive into and we can allow people to have without feeling guilty about it. So it's more about reflecting more of reality, really, I'd say, than it is about saying, oh, well, you're the outcast, you're the misnomer. Nope, we're just the outcast and the misnomer because you were shouting about it. Most companies that are doing well at the small to medium level, they just don't get up and shout about it. They just quietly go about their business, making nice profits, creating great companies that are sustainable and wonderful for a small or medium-sized number of people and customers. And that's wonderful. Like Most of the world is like this. Most of the world is small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, it's just... There's this tiny little handful, and especially in technology, of these mega companies that uh, sort of try to own the world and in some cases succeed at it within their niche that sucks up all the coverage and all the attention like a fucking uh, black <laughs> hole. It doesn't allow 
any other light to escape. And that's just a travesty. We need to rectify that. And it really affects, like you said, the aspirations of especially... You know, not not to generalize, but especially younger people who start up because the, the, you know, the barrier of entry is so low and the cost of failing can be on the cheaper side because of just, you know, the, you know, just the Internet. Right. And just just the way things are now. Um, so like the aspirations you hear people is to be the next, you know, insert tech behemoth here, the next Facebook, the next Twitter. Like, what what are you what goes through your head when you hear. Like, are you sad for people that it's like, uh, we want to be the Uber of something or we're going to Uberfy, you know, I, I, I uh, you know, do copywriting, you know, as a side. And um, I was speaking with a company recently and I guess a quick Google search will quickly be able to um, allow people to see who I'm talking about. But, you know, they, they, they quite literally brand themselves as the Uber of, you know, car mechanics, you know, and, and I thought that that was sad. You know, I saw that and I was like, you're 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 already giving away your identity to to something else. So I mean, what goes through your head when you hear the, the, these types of aspirations with with the younger companies that are starting up? I should say, I think in some ways it's just a reflection of the distortion field that's going on right now. Right when we're building up and positioning these unicorns and Ubers and what have you as this ultimate goal, well, then of course everyone wants to be that. And it just leads to a, a death of ideas and a shrinking of the spectrum of, uh, of interestingness. Yes, Uber is interesting. Absolutely. They came up with sort of a new way of doing things, and that's great. Good for them. They're also, I think, in many ways, a terrible company. Um, I think there are large parts of the Uber story that is completely unsavory. Um, I've stopped using Uber after being an early cheerleader for the company just by the revelations of their business tactics and their whole um, we're going to take over the world or kill anyone standing in our way, metaphorically speaking. I found very unappealing. Um, And I found it even more unappealing the louder everyone else was cheering for how good this was, right? So uh, I'd actually say that uh, I find in a world composed of more companies of smaller size to be far more interesting, far more diverse, um, to allow an expression of far more different kinds of motivations. Um, So I just wish we would focus a little more on that. That doesn't mean we can't have Ubers. It doesn't mean we can't have Twitters or Facebooks or whatever. It just means that sort of the size of that black hole we shrink it a little bit we allow some light to escape somewhere else to point to other galaxies and stars and formations and so forth and and we're happy having it be just one part of the puzzle one part of the picture and for some people if that's what they want to do okay wonderful but let it be a buffet of options let there be more things on the shelves than just this one thing at the top that says you gotta be this you gotta be this you gotta be this um, and we're going to be better off for it. Uh, and I think there's going to be far more happier outcomes, right? The odds of you becoming a unicorn, the odds of you becoming the next Uber are so ridiculously small that you might as well just get a Powerball lottery coupon, right? Versus if your motivations are a little more modest, if your aspirations are a little more centered to what's likely to happen to the actual odds of starting a business, then you might look at something like, hey, if I could just make a small business that was making five, ten million dollars a year, which is already a great success, um, what would that look like? What would those odds look like? Would I rather want that coupon? Would I rather want a much better shot at a company of that size than a tiny, tiny shot at this mega thing, right? Because I think the strategies are often direct opposition. The things you have to do to become Uber are often things that are direct opposition to the things that you would want to do to become a small or medium-sized successful business. And one of those is obviously, you know, really hot button issue, uh, funding, right? I mean, a lot of success is perceived based on whether you have a hefty Series A in your company profile. Um, you know, something interesting that you said in, the, in your most recent piece was, you know, reject the money if you dare. You know, um, even at one point in the in the article referring to um, the whole, you know, funding and venture capital as, as, as a multi-level investment scheme. So really, if you were advising a startup 
uh, about whether or not to take funding? What kinds of things would you be um, enlightening them on? And 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 why do you feel so strongly, um, you know, about, you know, like you said, it does run counter to being a small, profitable company. But why do you feel so strongly about, you know, rejecting the money if you dare? So part of it is for by my own story and watching other companies sort of go through the opposite side of it, right? So obviously, I've been quite happy, quite thrilled with the experience we've had over 12 years now running Basecamp on our schedule, according to our controls, according to our vision. The problem is when you take Series A, you almost got to say Series B and oftentimes Series C and Series D. And in other words, you're on a track and it's going one way. There is no going back. Once you accept the money, you accept what comes with it, which is an entire predefined destiny that says either you're going to go be this huge thing where we get a wonderful return on our investment or you're going to blow up, die trying. Right? There are two options here um, for it to be a success for the, uh, for the money lenders. And that is just a pretty nasty train to be on unless you are completely going in with your eyes open and saying, yes, this is what I want. I want a very unlikely shot at being a huge success or I want to die trying. Okay, if that's what you know and you've explored all the other options and you've weighed the pros and the cons... Well, more power to you. I don't think most people have weighed the pros and the cons and assessed the odds with nearly sufficient due diligence. Because if they had, I don't think nearly as many would feel like this is what I have to do to do startup, right? That startup has almost become synonymous with funding and that's being enforced at every turn by the media coverage. Uh, the easiest way for a startup today to get coverage is that creating a wonderful, exciting, new, useful product that lots of people are willing to buy? No. It's just announcing a series of money injections, right? Like, oh, I just borrowed a bunch of money that wants a huge return. Everyone, please cheer for me now. What? I just look at that and go, this just doesn't seem right. Like, why are we celebrating people basically taking on a mortgage? Right? <laughs> like, is, is that a source of celebration? Um, I, I don't understand. So, well, I do understand, right? Like, I do understand that that's not what it's about. It's about the whole machine. It's about the fun, or founding to funding pipeline that there is such a machinery now. There's such a sort of startup industrial complex running right now out of San Francisco that needs constant new fodder injected into its veins and sort of systematizing this whole thing. Well, the first thing you do is like you get your pitch deck together and then you walk around to the angels and then the angels give you large sums of money and then you blow through that money as quickly as you possibly can and then hopefully you have something that has captured enough eyeballs that you can get the interest of the venture capitalists and then they give you an obscene amount of money and, and hopefully at the end of the day you will get hundreds of millions of users and if you make it there, well, congratulations, your success. Failed along the way? Well, no, no bother. Just try again. But be sure to go in through the same path. Be sure to sign up for the same startup industrial complex and follow these rules. And I just go like, ah, oh, geez, fuck. Like, <laughs> I could not, for me, imagine a worse path. Again, I understand that for some people, they go in with their eyes open. They know what they're signing up for done all the due diligence on their own behalf, and then they say, fine, right, that's good. Uh, again, I'm talking to the people who didn't think it through all the way, or at least would be interested in hearing about another side, another option, another path to a successful startup that does not entail all these things we just talked about, right? And that is exactly the response I got to reconsider from a ton of people just, oh, you open my eyes to another path, which is all I'm trying to do here, right? Well, I'm also trying to take pot shots at venture capitalists because <laughs> I just a fucking horn in my thigh side about that because I just I can't stand it, right? But that's sort of uh, 
a side effect of it, uh, the main impact I'm trying to have is for people to consider more viable options for this whole startup phenomenon. Because unlike some people, I'm not willing to give up on the word startup. I think the word startup is a wonderful, powerful, energetic term, a real rallying cry for someone who wants to, uh, to start a new company. So to allow startup to be hijacked by money lenders to, to mean just their prescribed path, fuck no. Not going to go down without a fight on that one. And I love the part of your post where you kind of get into your, you know, your own uh, motivations, you know, for starting up and, and, you know, a lot of it, like, like much of what you say does run counter to, you know, the, the more, the thinking that gets covered, I should say. Um, and you talked about wanting life beyond work, which, you know, the whole crush it unicorn stigma of modern technology, you know, that's about like, you know, bringing your laptop with you everywhere and, and being on the clock all the time and doing whatever it takes to, um, you know, you know, t- to succeed. And um, but you and I loved the line. I think my favorite line in the whole post was about um, you. You don't want to constantly think about how owing somebody more of your precious 20s and 30s, which I think really hit home for me, but also I'm sure for a lot of people. Right. Because it's like you devote so much of your time to thinking about this stuff and that kind of that kind of outlook kind of makes you question like and even if it's just for 2 seconds like yeah you know this is a this is a really important time personally as well um you know so that life beyond work you know can you talk more about that and 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 what that has meant for you and and having base camp as part of it sure so i think first of all this is where I consider the startup industrial complex to be sinister. And the sinister aspect of it, it is no skin off any of these moneylenders back if they sell this myth that the only way to be successful is to basically sell them the entirety of your 20s and, and most of your 30s, right? Because most of this is targeting uh, young people coming into the system. The most uh, uh, sort of gullible in some aspect perhaps um at least easily swayed people don't know what they're giving up yet haven't been through that haven't sold a decade of their life haven't looked back on it with regret so the appeals are happening much more easily and more readily well i've certainly first of all i'm now uh 36 um (laughs) And even before that, and I have given some part of the last, what, 12 years, 14 years of my life to Basecamp. So I've been through that, but I've also been through that in a way and with perhaps just an intuition from the beginning that still got confirmed by my own lived experience and my conversations with plenty of other founders, some who made it well and some who didn't make it so well, who come out on the other side and look back on the time and think, was that well spent? Like, I gave away such a huge chunk of my life. I tried to compress my work life into this short uh, VC time cycle, right? The five to seven years. And if all that worked out, I would never have to work again and everything would be wonderful. Well, these are the most precious years and these are the most precious decades for a lot of activities, for a lot of things that you want to do or learn or try. It's not coming back. You're getting this one life to do it. You're getting this one shot. And to give all of that up for a very unlikely low odds shot that if even if it all goes well, even if you do happen to sell your 20s and most of your 30s for something that turns out to be a pot of gold, right? Now you have a pot of gold and you just sold two of your best decades for, for spending that pot of gold to get it. Like, uh, I don't know, man. Just doesn't look like a good trade to me. And I think part of why it doesn't look like a good trade is people vastly overestimate this bliss that they're going to experience once they become a millionaire. I mean, I'm not going to make any bones about it. Like, I've been a millionaire for a decade now. Um, Maybe that has distorted and perverted and rose-colored my glasses to such a degree that I cannot see the past before that motion and uh, before that happened and that everything was actually truly terrible and I had a horrible life and becoming a millionaire saved me and all this. No, I'm sorry. I don't buy it. It just wasn't so. 
I'm not going to lie and say that it's not wonderful not to have to worry about uh, what a meal costs at a restaurant or whether I can pay rent in five years or whatever else. That is great. Like There's a lot of good to come from it. But it's limited, restricted good that is traded against all sorts of other goods. Um, and one of the main goods that I've gotten out over the last 15 years is becoming good at a lot of different things, exploring a lot of different things in my life. Um, I have all sorts of hobbies and passions that I've been able to combine with working at Basecamp because it wasn't this exclusionary, oh, I can only think about Basecamp 24-7 thing. So I love photography. I've gotten so much better at taking pictures. It's such a joy to be able to look back over 10 years of photography, both in terms of the memories that that's encapsulated that I can now look back on, the skill that I've been able to accumulate over that. It's just been a joyous experience, right? Um, I started driving race cars, a wonderful experience that I've had a lot of fun with. I've continued to hone and deepen my craft. Programming is still a huge part of what I do every day. I think if you talk to almost any other tech founder that's still around at a company at our scale 10 years later, tiny, tiny minority of those guys or girls still program, right? It just, they grow out of it or they get promoted out of it or their company just becomes so big that it's not a thing that they can do anymore. Well, absolutely not. No way. I, that is not me. That's not what I want to do. I love programming. I want to continue programming until I can't program anymore, right? It's just a, a joyful uh, part of my working experience. I don't want to give that up. So there's just all these aspects of the lived experience of saying, hey, work is great. Building a company is great. Building a startup is great. Becoming economically successful is great and there are all these other great things too and i'm greedy in that sense i want it all i want to have some of everything i don't want to have just a, a plate that's only filled with one kind of food right i want to sample everything like the world is a fucking amazing place and there's so many things to learn so many things to explore that if you try to crush just one thing down over it and make it the sole purpose of your existence for however long that takes, well, you're going to miss out and you're going to miss out terribly. Again, that's me. That's what worked for me. I'm selling like, hey, I just had a pretty good ride over the last 15 years doing it this way. Consider that to be one of your options. If you look at that and if you evaluate all that and you still think, hey, well, fuck that. I don't want any diversity of my interest. I just want one thing. I want to crush it. And I want to sort of sell my most precious decades of life into this. By all means, go ahead. Knock yourself out. Um, on the other side, if you don't like it, don't say it and tell you so. <laughs> and, um, you know, sort of to, uh, you know, so, and, and that was like an apropos, really, theme from from your entire really expose but sort of to end off um you know more on a lighter note like you know you you have all these different areas you know you still program the photography race cars like where do you where do you extract inspiration from um in all of these different areas like where do you go is it um you know basically to just get inspired and to to do these things that are in your life so in all these areas i love good things. I love to get closer to better. I love progress. And in programming, I love reading code. I love improving my own code. There's just, there's always more you can do. There's always more you can learn. There's always more to internalize better patterns, better chips, better tricks. And you can see that. I feel it. Like I can feel that the code I write today is better than the code I wrote a year ago is better than the code I wrote five years ago. It's a very rewarding cycle of flow and improvement. The same is true with photography. It's, it's visibly true, right? Like you look at a picture. I look at a picture I took 10 years ago and I go like, oh, <laughs> look how poor the composition is. Like my white balance was off. Like I should have punched up those colors. I could have saved those shadows. Like I know the whole world of it now. I've developed an eye for it so I can spot quality and uh, I can know why things are good uh, why they're good and I can know why things that are bad and why they're bad and I can look back at my previous pictures and I can sort of laugh at myself or sometimes just go like huh uh, that was a really nice picture I mean I sure got lucky there because I didn't know what the hell I was doing 
Um, same thing with racing, right? Like I look at the earliest races that I did and just like, oh my God, it was so damn slow. I didn't know how to do that apex properly. I didn't know when I needed to be trail breaking. I didn't know like just a proper slip angle to apply. I didn't know how to counter steer quickly enough. Like I've developed this eye and intuition for it. And it's just very rewarding to have that sensation in multiple areas of your life. Uh, betterment, better of betterment of yourself, betterment of your designed lifestyle, all of these aspects. It's just a really rewarding and inspiring uh, thing. And I get some of it exactly as looking backwards. And then I get a lot of it looking forwards and looking at other people's uh, accomplishments in photography. I, I love looking at beautiful photos and just thinking, wow, that's such a beautiful shot. And then I try to decompose it. Why is it so good? Is it this use of color? Is it this use of the composition? Is it this lighting technique? Is this this use of foreground and background and middle ground? What are, what did this person know that I don't know yet? What have I not yet internalized? Why isn't it me taking this picture? A lot of the things really comes from that sort of drive to just constantly think like, hey, if there's somebody else that can take a picture like this, I can learn this. I can figure this out. Same thing with code. If somebody can can write this in such a way where I can look at the code and just go like, wow, that's really something. Like, I want to learn that. I want to internalize it. I want to mimic that until it's me. Same thing with racing. I'm constantly competing against professionals and I look sometimes in awe and go like, how the hell was that guy a second and a half faster than me? Just beyond my comprehension at that moment. And then I think, no, it's not beyond my comprehension. That person did very specific steps to get there. I can figure that out. I can analyze it. I can get to that level. That becomes my new goal. That becomes my new inspiration to constantly be in betterment of myself, to constant being progress of myself and just enjoying that ride along the way. Not looking at somebody who's better than what I am today and then feeling, oh, I should feel so terrible. I'm so unworthy. I suck. Uh, no, I do good for what I am, where I am right now. And I enjoy that. And I've enjoyed that in the entire long the way, right? But I also enjoy getting better at it. So you can sort of combine those two things to never feel shitty about where you are right now and don't feel shitty about where you're going. Uh, that's a big optimization of my whole life principle is like, hey, let's minimize the amount of time that I feel shitty about things. Maximize <laughs> the amount of time where I don't feel shitty about things, where I'm content, where I'm tranquil about the situation, where I feel like I'm in control and things are good. And if they aren't good, I'll figure out how to damn well fix them until they are. That's a great principle. Uh, one question I have, how does one get involved in racing? Um, like wh what level are you... Um, you know, wh where has that taken you? Like, wh how did you get involved in racing? Sure. So it started with a friend that invited me to a local track back in 2007. Um, I'd only got, just gotten my driver's license two years prior at age 25. So I was already way, way, way behind the curve of, of race car drivers. Uh, most of them start when they're toddlers and go-karts. Um, but I had played a lot of video games, so I will say that, um, but anyway, I got into a car in, in 2007, got a taste of it, and thought like, wow, this is something. And part, one of the reasons I knew it was something was just how intense the experience was, right? Like, so I went there the first day, and then uh, I, I subsequent of, of that year, I went to a couple of races, and I would always come back home, and I'd be completely mentally and physically exhausted in the very best way possible. I knew of I know of very few things that are as satisfying as being completely spent because your brain was simply trying to comprehend new material at a very fast clip, right? So I would come back from a race and I'd go to bed at like 7 o'clock. I'd just be so spent. Part of it was just the body was not used to G-forces. The other part of it was it was just trying to build the neural pathways to process shit, turn's coming up. I'm going 150 miles an hour. If I don't break, turn, do all these things in the right order, I'm going to hit a wall and it's going to hurt very badly, right? It was just a survival instinct that was kicking in. So I just found that whole experience intoxicating. And a big part of that intoxication is this notion of flow, which was the same thing that got me interested and hooked on programming, that you could fall into this mental state of mind where you're just completely engrossed in the activity to the point of losing track of time and place. You're just like 100% focused. Nothing else on your mind. 
completely engrossed. That is, that's a drug of epic proportions. I have tried a variety of other drugs, usually not the illicit kinds, but uh, through <laughs> surgery and so on, things that mimic uh, um, all sorts of things, right? Uh, and some people like that, and God bless him. Um, if, if that's your, your speed, then pun intended. Um, have at it. For me, that notion of flow is just the, one of the best feelings in the world. So once I found that racing was a way to tap into flow, um, it was not a very hard sell for me to um, stick with it. And then I stuck with it for a lot of years where all I did, I, I'd go to the local track and I'd, I'd race around down there in, uh, in my car with some local friends in Chicago. And then finally after, well, not finally, not like that was the final destination or anything, but at some point, I should rather say, um, things were going well enough with Basecamp that I could afford to do the kind of racing that eventually leads to places like the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which for quite some time had, sort of for me, been the pedestal of racing. This was where fellow countryman Tom Christensen won the 24 Hours of Le Mans like nine times, right? Like So that's... Um, an accomplishment that was deeply inspiring to me, and I wished that I could do that too. So at some point, the stars lined up enough that I had accumulated enough skill that it was not a complete embarrassment to myself showing up in on a professional circuit with other true professionals, uh, and that I could see a path to getting to 24 Hours of Le Mans. That's what I've been doing for the past I think when I'm going next year, it'll be my fifth time at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Um, just absolutely love doing it. The championship I'm in is called the World Endurance Championship. It hits on a lot of the things that otherwise resonates in my life, like sticking with it, going to distance. Endurance racing is all about that. It's all about being a team sport. It's not just about a single driver. We're usually three drivers to a car. There's a large team behind it, a bunch of engineers and mechanics. You have to make the machinery last for a very long time. It's just a... It hits all the, the high notes for me as a, as a very motivating and, uh, and fun hobby. So there you go. That's great, man. That, that's great. You're a fascinating guy. It seems like you, uh, you, I, I love the, uh, the, the, the commitment really to, you know, um, really just ensuring that you, you know, have these hobbies, uh, you know, they, they are respected and given enough time as well. And I think that's something that, uh, most people, regardless of, industry or company or space, whatever, uh, can learn from. So yeah, that's really fascinating stuff. And I really enjoyed this conversation, David. This is really fascinating. Thanks so much for, for coming on and, and spending so much time hanging out. Sure. My pleasure. I want to get, uh, going. It's uh, kind of like, uh, almost hard to stop. So <laughs> <laughs> I think we could say, yeah. And if, if for, for those listening, if you haven't read, uh, David's post reconsider on medium, it's, it's also on, uh, signal versus noise blog, I believe as well. Um, definitely check that out because I think you'll see, uh, what he means by once you get started, he, it's, it's hard to stop because really fascinating piece. Um, can't thank you enough, David, again, for, for coming on today and sharing, um, so much. This, this was a lot of fun. My pleasure entirely. And for everyone else listening, thank you for coming by once again. And be sure to tune in next time, and we will have more great guests. So long, everyone. Bye.